Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, as we uh, come to your word now, I pray that it would be with humble hearts eager to receive it. We think of what Samuel said when you called him to your service. Um, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. I pray that would be our prayer as well. Speak to us, Father, through your word. We want to hear from you. And so help us to hear and to receive gladly and to apply your word to our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have been in the Sermon on the Mount for the last eight Sundays. And uh, we're coming now to the end of chapter 5. And so I thought it might be helpful to have just a little bit of review. So grab your Bible. If you didn't bring one, grab one from a chair near you. And I would just like to walk through with you the, the section headings there in uh, our Bibles <clears throat> as we do a quick review of chapter 5. Now, the first section heading then after the introductory verse 1, Sermon on the Mount, is the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are the values of the kingdom of God. The values of the kingdom of God. These are the things that, that we as Christ followers value, and they're very different from the things that the world values. Next heading, Salt and Light, speaks about our mission as Jesus' followers. We are to be salt and light. Salt was primarily seen as a preservative in that day, and and we are here to have a preservative influence over a culture that that is rotting away without us. We are also to be light, to draw people's attention and reflect it off of ourselves to God so that he gets the glory. The uh, next section uh, is entitled, uh, Christ Came to Fulfill the Law. That's a good way to put it. Uh, It describes his mission in part. It's one aspect of his mission. And uh, it speaks of his relationship with the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, all that went before him. Jesus came to fulfill that, to complete that. Uh, People had a certain view of of the Old Testament, of the law and the prophets. Jesus came uh, to fulfill that and also to set straight their perception of what God has been trying to accomplish. And so all of that gets fleshed out in the next six sections, which we call the six antitheses. These are statements where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And so he's setting straight some misperceptions in terms of the law and the prophets uh, and their very rough interpretation of the law and the prophets. And so for the first one, entitled Anger, in in my Bible here, uh, they believe that the issue is murder. And Jesus says, no, the issue is anger. It goes much deeper than the surface thing that you can see. Uh, The issue isn't just murder, it's anger. And the second one, entitled Lust, he says, "Uh, you have heard that the issue is adultery? No, it's not, it's much deeper than that. The issue is lust. The third one, uh, he says, you have heard that the issue is how we regulate divorce. And Jesus said, no, the issue is marriage. It's not divorce. The the issue is marriage and how we build that up, how we honor the institution of marriage that God has ordained. 
In the fourth one, he says, uh, you've heard that the issue is, is your performance, whether or not you live up to the things that you swear you're going to do. That it's wrong to swear something and then not do it. And Jesus says, no, the issue isn't your performance, the issue is your integrity. You should be such people that you don't need to swear that you'll do anything at all. Your word should be good enough by itself. It's not about performance, it's about integrity. The fifth one, entitled Retaliation, uh, Jesus says, uh, you've heard that the issue is standing up for your rights. No, I tell you the issue is knowing how to lay your rights aside, to lay them down. And then we come to the sixth and final one today, where Jesus says, you've heard that the issue is knowing who to love. I tell you, the issue is knowing how to love. That's the issue. And that's the one we're going to look at today. Let's take another look at those verses, 43 to 48. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Uh, Jesus uh, was quoting the conventional wisdom of their day that says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. Uh, That could as well be the conventional wisdom of our day. It's kind of how people live. And uh, these people were were using it as, as a rough paraphrase of Leviticus chapter 19, but What they didn't understand was what a distortion of God's word it was. What a distortion of Leviticus 19 it was. We had a few readings from Leviticus 19 this morning just to kind of show the breadth of the chapter. It's a great chapter, and I included it in the midweek email for those of you who like to read ahead. If you didn't read it this past week, I'd I'd suggest going ahead and reading it this week because it speaks in a number of different ways, different settings about how we can show the love of God to people around us. Great chapter. But in verse 18 of Leviticus chapter 19, it says, love your neighbor as yourself, as yourself. Now, in, in Matthew 5, as Jesus was kind of quoting the conventional wisdom of the day, did you notice they left the as yourself part out? Uh, they'd kind of let go of that part, uh, which is a really important part. It, it sets a very high standard for how we love those around us. Is there anything you wouldn't do for you? Uh, there's very little I wouldn't do for me. And and so we're to apply that standard to those around us. Love your neighbor as yourself. They sort of left that part out. And not only that, but this same chapter speaks about not just the neighbor, but speaks of the one who isn't your neighbor and how we are to treat that person as well. Verses 9 and 10 provide for the sojourner, the person who's not native to the land, the person who's wandering through the land, and it it says you're to provide for that person even in how you reap your crops. Don't reap right up to the edge of your field. Leave some standing grain 
for the sojourner who is among you so that he can find some food as he passes through your land. And when you harvest your grapes, don't take them all. Take the clusters off, but the ones that fall to the ground, leave them there. Someone's going to be coming through after you, and you'll want to have something for him to find there that can provide for him. Verse 34 of that same chapter speaks about how to treat the sojourner who is among you. It says, treat him as though he were native to your land. Uh, love him as you love yourself. That same standard that's applied to the neighbor is now applied to the stranger. Love him as you love yourself. So they overlooked some very important things that Leviticus chapter 19 had to say. Not only that, though, they went on to add something that Leviticus didn't have to say. And that is, hate your enemies. Uh, Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. The Old Testament had some very important things to say, though, about how we treat our enemies. One of the things, uh, by way of example, is what happens when somebody's animal becomes lost, and you find it, or an animal is overcome by its burden and collapses beneath the load. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 1 to 4, speaks about that situation. So let me find it here. Deuteronomy 22, verses 1 to 4. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house. And it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or his cell phone or with any lost thing of your brother's. Was that not in the original? Okay. Just want to make sure I still had you. Uh, Any lost thing of your brother's which he loses and you find, you may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. That's what you do when the thing that was lost or the animal that's overwhelmed is your friend's animal or the, the thing your friend lost. But take a look at Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. It has to do with when the thing that was lost is your enemies. Uh, Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, Lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. That sound familiar at all? Does that sound like something we just read in Deuteronomy 22? Actually, I went to great lengths this week to prepare an extra chart for you to kind of lay these two passages out side by side. to, to make sure we're understanding the situation 
here in terms of how you deal with a friend's animal and how you deal with an enemy's animal. And I, I want to give you a, a minute to size it up because it's, it's you know, a little complicated here. Um, you don't need a minute? No? Okay. Pretty simple, isn't it? We treat them exactly the same. And yet somehow God's people didn't get it. Somehow they overlooked that part. We are to love indiscriminately because that's how God loves. And that brings us to our first point, how God loves. Verse 45 says, God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. How God loves. Kids, this is a great word. How many six-syllable words do you know? I mean, this is a great word. Indiscriminately. Isn't that a great word? That's how God loves. He loves indiscriminately. That means without discriminating between people, between choosing who he's going to love and who he isn't going to love. He loves everybody the same. We call it common grace. God gives common grace to us all. Things God does for everyone, regardless of their relationship with him. We sang earlier, uh, it's your breath in our lungs. Every breath we breathe is a gift of his and we pour it out then back to him in praise. Here, Jesus focuses on sunshine and rain in verse 45. God gives them freely to everybody as gifts of common grace. Both sunshine and rain are needed for life. And God gives them freely to all. It says he makes his son, by the way, whose son is it? Ah, great little thing to notice in the text. It's his, and he gives it to us all. He makes his son rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Did you notice the word order in those pairings? He makes his son rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Do you notice the difference there? Bad guys get first billing the first time round. Good guys get first billing the second time round. Does that suggest anything to you? God gives common grace freely. Freely to them all. It doesn't matter. He's going to give it to all. It's a sign of his love. It's indiscriminate. And when he tells us in verse 44 to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us, it gives us greater insight still into how God loves us because he has demonstrated both of those things himself to us in Christ. We on this side of the cross can see it much more clearly than they could, but Consider this idea of loving your enemies and then think about Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his love for us 
in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Talk about loving your enemies. And consider the idea of praying for those who persecute you. He demonstrated that for us in Christ as well. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Jesus from the cross says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus prayed for those who were killing him. That's how God loves. He asks us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us because he was willing to do that on our behalf. God's love is indiscriminate. And that stands in contrast with how the world loves, and we see how the world loves in verses 46 and 47. The world says, love those who love you, in verse 46. Um, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? They all do that. Everybody loves those who love them. It's easy to love when someone loves us back. Easier still when someone loves us first. The world says, I'll love you to the degree to which you love me. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. But Jesus calls us to scratch the back of someone who would as easily stab yours. Because he wants us to give grace. And that's how grace operates. It loves the undeserving and it is proactive. It moves first. That's the wonder of grace. Because grace is proactive, because grace moves first, it is the strong position that's needed for a relational breakthrough. Do you have a relational logjam? What will break the logjam? Nothing but grace. Grace will, will remove uh, the log that is causing all else to be backed up. It's the strong position for a relational breakthrough. Grace can make a person a friend while payback will only maintain an enemy. So the world says, love those who love you. The world also says, love those who you're close to. Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even Gentiles do the same? Everybody does that. Everybody loves, loves people who are a lot like them, who are close to them. And in Luke chapter 10, a lawyer asks Jesus this question, and who is my neighbor? Remember that one? He was trying to justify himself in terms of his poor treatment of those around him. And Jesus responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan. The kind of must have shocked everybody who heard it. Because we know that Samaritans were different from us. They were despised. They were half-breeds. They were descendants of people who intermarried with the Assyrians who conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And Jesus made one of them the hero of his story. So the world says, love those who love you, love those you're close to. And Jesus says, no, love indiscriminately like your father loves. So in contrast to how the world loves, Jesus tells us to love like the father loves. Verse 48, look like dad. Look like dad. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It would be unnatural for us not to look like our father. 
Now, let me show you a picture of a couple people, one of whom you know, the other whom you might not know. Guy on the right, you know as Pastor Steve, without the beard. But without the beard, man, does he look like his dad. His dad is on the left. Now, does it surprise any of you that the guy on the left is Steve's dad? I don't think so. Uh, you know, uh, they look so much alike. The fact of the matter is sons should look like their dads. We reflect our parents in the way we look, and we also reflect our parents in the way we act. The old proverb says, like father, like son, right? In John chapter 8, Jesus confronts the Pharisees by telling them that they are looking a lot like their father in the things that they're doing with him. And it's not a compliment. Uh, John chapter 8, if we start at verse 42, it says this, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You're looking a lot like your dad these days, he's telling these people. Fact of the matter is, children of the devil do devilish things. If we're children of the Heavenly Father, though, we should do the things that look like the things He does. And Jesus calls us to go beyond the way the world loves and to love like the Father loves, indiscriminately. Show the family resemblance. How's that look? Well, verse 44, Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Family resemblance should come through in how we treat those people. We can be like dad in loving our enemies. Verse 44, if you love just those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? Love your enemies. What what people would Jesus' audience, as he spoke these words, have included in the category of enemy? Well, He mentions two sets of people in verses 46 and 47 that they weren't very fond of. I think they would readily qualify in his hearer's understanding of who their enemies were. And he mentions them because they're people that his audience would readily recognize as enemies. And he calls us not to hate them, but to love them. The first group that he mentions in verse 46 is the tax collectors. Tax collectors. What do you know about tax collectors? These were people who did bad things. They did bad things. They were Jews working for the Roman government and making a pile of money in doing so. They were turncoats. And Jesus called one of them to be his disciple. Can you imagine a tax collector? We've been studying the gospel he wrote. Matthew, how do we relate to people like that? How do we relate to people who do bad things? 
Can we give them common grace? Sunshine and rain, things that bring life. Tina and I were at the Free Church Conference in Cincinnati a while ago, a few years, and we were staying in a hotel that didn't provide breakfast, and we didn't have a car, and so we looked for some place to get breakfast that was near us, found one online, it was a restaurant just a few blocks away, a little diner, and so we set out to walk there, not knowing that we would be going past an abortion clinic on our way. It was an interesting place that morning, there was a pretty good-sized crowd there. As we walked down the sidewalk, the clinic was on our right, and, and there in front of the doors were people kind of guarding the doors. On the other side of the sidewalk, just feet away, was a very angry crowd of people. And one of them was shouting at the people at the door through a bullhorn, just a few feet away. And as we passed, I wanted to say, brother, I so agree with your cause, and I so disagree with your method. I've also seen people who will come to an abortion clinic and humbly kneel to pray that God would change the hearts of the people there. And the people who were coming there. And the question in my mind is, which approach do you think will be the more effective in changing hearts? How do we treat those who do bad things? How do we get through to them? The second group Jesus mentions, and he mentions them in verse 47, is the Gentiles. Um, this is a group of people that they would probably ready, readily recognize as enemies as well. The first group, uh, the, the tax collectors, people who do bad things. The second group, the Gentiles, the people who are just different, different from us and, and different in ways that, that were repulsive to them. They called them Gentile dogs. And they despised them because they were different. And it took an awful lot to get over that difference in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. You see that played out in the book of Acts and all through the New Testament. The fact of the matter is God loves them too. Wants them to come to saving faith in Christ. People who are different from us. Who would fit that category in our own minds? Maybe some people who would entertain differences in, in theological issues, that uh, different positions on those than we hold. Things like baptism, infant, adult, believer, um, or the Lord's Supper, memorial, or some sense of the presence of Christ coming to us through it. Eschatology, premillennial, Amillennial, uh, postmillennial uh, inerrancy. These theological issues where people may be different from us, how do we treat them? How do we interact with them? One of the mottos of the Evangelical Free Church from some of its earliest days comes from John Chrysostom when he said, In essential things, 
unity. In non-essential things, liberty. In all things, charity. We need to be charitable to people who differ from us. Do we feel the need to camp on what is different or can we focus on what is essential for the sake of the gospel and then interact in a loving way on those non-essentials where we differ? How do we treat those who are different from us? Jesus says we are to love indiscriminately as the Father loves and the word that he uses for love in that instance is the Greek word agape, one of four Greek words for love. The other three are also printed in your program in the further thought section. You can kind of see uh, what those are. This agape love is different from the other three, though. Not that it is devoid of emotion, but it's not based on emotion. It doesn't depend on emotion. Agape love is more centered in the will than it is in the emotions. I would define it as desiring God's best for someone and applying ourselves to bringing that about. Desiring God's best for the other person and then applying ourselves to bringing that about. It's indiscriminate love. It provides common grace, and it gives life. So we can be like Dad by loving our enemies. We can be like Dad by praying for our persecutors, verse 44. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. When we are challenged to pray for our persecutors, we may think, aha, I know how I can pray for them. I know just what they need. And we run to a place like Psalm 109 and uh, says, Be not silent, O God, of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. I'm going to pray for them now. They encircle me with words of hate. They attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me. But I give myself to prayer. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to pray down thunder and lightning on them. And David goes on in Psalm 109 to pray uh, for his enemies in a way that God will execute justice swiftly against them. All because... It says in verse 16, they did not remember how to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy, brokenhearted to put them to death, persecuting godly people. I know how I can pray for them. I'll pray down God's judgment on them. And yet when we look in the context of Matthew chapter 5, I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind in the Sermon on the Mount. Suggests that he was talking about praying for their well-being because he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Nothing wrong with the imprecatory psalms. Uh, there are a number of them scattered throughout the psalms. And you'll notice a couple things about them. One is that David was praying for God's will to be done in their lives. He wanted judgment, maybe a little too soon, maybe, maybe he's quick to run to judgment, but he was asking God 
to do in their lives what God will ultimately do. The other thing that we can notice about the imprecatory Psalms is that David was bringing his raw emotions straight to God, not acting upon them himself. The the sort of fury we see toward his enemies in Psalm 109, if he had acted upon that, it, it would have been a really ugly scene. But instead, he brought those things to God, and we can do the same. But in the context of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is talking about praying for the well-being of those who persecute us. Can you love someone without praying for them? Not very well. Can you pray for someone without loving them? Not very long. Love your enemies. Pray for your persecutors. A third way that we can be like that. Verse 48 tells us about being perfect in our love. Be perfect in your love for them. Be indiscriminate in your love for them. He's not talking about sinless perfection here. He's talking about how we love. The common street language in Jesus' day was not Greek. It was Aramaic. It was all translated into Greek so that the gospel could spread throughout the Roman Empire. They spoke Aramaic day to day. And the the Aramaic word that he likely used here for perfect means all-embracing. All-embracing. He wants us to be as indiscriminate in our love as he is in his. It's how we bear the family resemblance. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, that at the end of the age, the love of many will grow cold. It's a prediction of what will happen. It's not his desire for what will happen. His desire for what will happen is that our love will grow warmer, not colder. And not just for those who love us, but also for those who don't. For those who do bad things, for those who are different, for those even who persecute us. Because that's how the Father loves. And we should bear the family resemblance. You like Dad. Amy Grant came out with a song a number of years ago called My Father's Eyes. Expressed her desire that she would have her father's eyes. That there would be a family resemblance where people could look at her and see a reflection of the heavenly father and how he looked at people and how he loved people indiscriminately. May it be said of us that we have our father's eyes. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we want that for ourselves. We, we want to have your eyes. We want to look like you. And we want to love like you. Help us to do that. Father, I pray that you would even bring to mind, even now, someone who is hard to love. Help us, Father, to understand that it is grace alone that can break the logjam. Help us to love like you love. In Jesus' name, amen.